This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where right now you're going to find whole chickens, local whole chickens, uh, on sale. You can save quite a bit on both Ranger Chicken and Organic Roxy Chicken. I used to work at the Roxy Theater. That was that was some tasty stuff. This hmm. would be too. I'm sure there's probably no connection between the two other than the deliciousness, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, be sure to take advantage of other great deals going on at your local Zupans. The wild Mexican shrimp is on sale. You can save up to $8 a pound on this. And Chris, I need to I need to mention this. Uh, we, you and I are both big fans of the grab-and-go meals that you can get at your local Zupans. Mm-hmm. I, got their, I got their white cheese mac and cheese the other day for the family dinner and i'm i i admittedly i'm not a huge mac and cheese guy but i loved it i was going back to it non-stop i had it for seconds and then i had it for uh, lunch the next day so good and they make it so easy for you you can order uh from the deli itself or oftentimes they just have the literally the containers you just grab and go and you're ready you're ready to eat well, it's one of my favorite things when I don't know what I want. Just go to the grab and go section and also to their, um, you know, to their section where they have prepared food. So you don't have to do anything but heat up dinner and uh, and serve it. That's always a treat. And everything is delicious and excellent that they make there under the auspices of Chef John. That's right. And uh, another thing you need to make sure you do is sign up for the news feed on their website, zoopans.com. You'll get uh, kind of the heads up on things going on at your local Zoopans. And I should point this out. I'm now seeing a dessert that I need to try, which is the killer brownie orange and passion fruit brownies uh, that you can pick up at your local Zoopans. So there's something new I need to try. Yeah, there always is something new, and those sound really good, too. Thanks for mentioning that, Court. And also, you know what would go well with that is some Umbria coffee, which is, uh, you'll save $3 a bag right now. So um, that's a great place to get it. Pair that, pair those brownies with some coffee and uh, enjoy your, whenever you're going to have them, morning or evening. Three locations to serve you, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, and details always where? Zoopans.com. All right, here it is. Ooh, my voice just cracked. Let me try that again. Oh, I like it. We, I, we don't need to try it again. Go right in with that, Court. We should keep this in there? Yes. All right. here. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're professionals. Uh, here it is. It's uh, Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus, Portland Food Adventures, and I'm the squeaky-voiced Court Johnson. I didn't hear that, so, you know, I'm getting older, so my ears maybe aren't as... Um Aren't as adept at uh, noting those things, but I thought it sounded. You didn't hear fun. those. Yeah, I didn't hear. Didn't it. hear those upper decibels. Yeah. So listen, I was in my archives, uh, my Facebook archives, the other day. Hi, Court. By the way. Hey. I was in my archives the other day, and it appears that it was nine years ago, right around this time, that we were getting together, recording the pilot. Uh, which never aired, by the way. I have to get Joel Gunderson back. But uh, just the, the kind of the test episode for Right at the Fork at the time. Um, that was nine years ago, around, around now. I'm, see, it's crazy, Chris, because there's so much of that time that I remember, but I, I had no idea that we recorded the pilot and then never released it. You know why? Because you weren't involved, I just realized. We did it at oh. that podcast company that Heather had found. 
right? And then I realized that wasn't going to work. Let's. I, I know right. this guy Court. So that's that's how that went. You weren't you weren't involved in that. All right. Well, then that, that makes more sense then. Yeah. By the time we hit you, we had already decided we were doing it, and I was the host. That was my audition, actually. Gotcha. So huh. it wasn't it wasn't necessarily your podcast or mine then. It was uh, I was auditioning for it with Heather. Right. Yeah. So I don't I don't believe I got it. That's kind of crazy. But I think the main reason that I became host of this podcast right off the bat was because I had a lot of contacts. And I think as sure. as you and I have learned, probably that's just about as important, if not more important, than actually being able to talk and interview. Oh man. I think that it's it's that for everything in life. You 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 hear it all the time. It's not who you it's not what you know, it's who you know and that that is for every facet of your life. Yeah, Jobs, no, I've been telling podcasts. my kids they're different. You know, they're in ones in tech, and they're, they're different. They're they're they grew up in a different era. But I have always yep. told them there's not a meal you've eaten, and well, I don't still tell them that. But there's not a meal that you've eaten, and any heat that you felt that wasn't because of someone I had a relationship with that I knew that or that trusted me. Um, right. And that's hard. Yeah, not only you have to go through the people you know to the people that trust you to actually um, for that to work. But at any rate, um, yeah, that's a lot of the key we found, especially since the uh, pandemic. It's just a little harder to get guests, and it could be that it was hard then. And I'm just projecting. It could be just as easy because you know the, the, this week is a case in point. Um, I had I tried to contact a few people. Now I used to try to contact people and always hear back. Right now I don't always hear back, and it's, I don't think there's any offense I should take, but I think people are so busy. We're in an era where people just take I'm not responding as a no. I can't do that. That's what they're using instead of a gracious hey. I'd love to do that, but I can't, or I can. When do you want to do it? But um. That's what's going on. But here's a case in point. Anybody who listens to this podcast religiously or not religiously, secularly, um, last week we had uh, Gary the Foodie on, and we were talking about uh, the new kingpins in Portland because as many people know, we don't have the Andy Rickers here any longer, the Vitaly Paley's, the John Gorham's, the um, David Machado's. I could keep going on. A lot of people have left and we identified, I identified perhaps Gregory Gorday would be one and Peter Cho would be another. And I know I, oh, Earl, for sure. Earl Ninsom. Oh, yeah. Yep. Of Eam and Paddy and Hot Yai and and Fukit, I'm still working on how to pronounce that. I have to go. Um, but Gary brought up these two who are on this week's episode, which is uh, Mariah and Tom Pisha Duffley from Gado Gado and Oma's Takeaway. And so um, I humbly had to admit to both of those folks when we did a little pre-interview that I had not been to their restaurants yet. And so, you know, I might not have called them because they, I didn't know them as we were just to come full circle. Right. And uh, but now I do. We spent an an hour and fifteen minutes. I promised them we'd only take an hour, and we it was so fun, and it went so well that it went. We I actually had to 
end it. We, we could have kept going on. Um, Mariah ended up, uh, her computer gave out. So she left and I thought, well, there's the cue. That's the, that's the, um, the voice from above telling us we need to end this. But it was really interesting. I really enjoyed speaking to Tom and Mariah for an hour. They were absolutely excellent guests. We hear from them about how they built a restaurant that's got a great reputation and a big following and and reservations are booked um, during the pandemic. Uh, they started it before and after uh, Gato Gato, and then they started Oma's Takeaway, which is an homage to uh, Tom's grandmother. Um, in the old Whiskey Soda Lounge space, during the pandemic, it was just a takeout spot, and uh, now it's a restaurant. So um, we talk about that. We talk about how their their cooking pasts, their um, uh, their kind of how they met, uh, why they met, and and then at the end, I thought it was kind of charming. They did little love notes to each other. I asked them what uh, what they loved most about each other because they, they're they're in business together and in they're in life together too. So it was really nice. They didn't hesitate. They knew exactly where they were going with that. So I really enjoyed this one, and I hope everyone else does too. Before we get to it, I just want to say we've started, uh, if you listen to this podcast, you know I do trips that can be found on portlandfoodadventures.com. Next month, in a few weeks, I'm leaving for both Sicily um, and also Basque Country, Spain with the folks from Urdaneta. Um, and we've started a, a third itinerary in April of 2023 to Basque Country, Spain, covering um, uh, Bilbao. Bermeo, where Chef Javier grew up and where he has roots and he's got a place and he knows his way around in the country. It's just fantastic to go visit old farms in the country and uh, some of the best restaurants in the world right there in Basque Country. Anybody who knows food knows San Sebastian is the hotbed and then also in San Sebastian. So we've started to fill that up. We're halfway filled now, so um, we're probably not going to be running promos or mentions of that trip for at least a month. So hopefully by the time that month is up, we'll be full and ready to go and moving on to Madrid or wherever else we're going to go in the fall. So sign up for Portland Food Adventures mailing list at portlandfoodadventures.com. There's a contact um, prompt and uh, we welcome you to do that. And we'd love, we have a great group of people, including, oh, should I say it, Court? Should I... Am I violating the privacy of people who've been on this podcast who are also coming on that trip if I say you can come with those folks? Do you think that's... Uh, mm. Well, you, you would know better than I would, Chris. Like, I, I mean... Well, I think George and Lynette Hauptman from Canyon Outfitters, where we've been doing our Snake River trips, are awesome, and I hope to be doing some more with them in the future. And they're coming. So they're coming to Spain. This is their retirement uh, celebration trip. So um, if you want to travel with them and some other great folks, too. So there's that. But I guess, Court, we should segue right into this wonderful interview. We should. So here it is. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. 
unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. Featuring the best chef-centric experiences in Portland since 2010. Go to portlandfoodadventures.com to see about the exciting trips our host Chris Angeles leads to places you have dreamed of going, like Western Sicily, this September. It's time to stretch your international wings and expand your culinary horizons. Let Portland Food Adventures do all the planning to the best dining and culture all over Europe and elsewhere with Portlanders you'll get to know and enjoy. portlandfoodadventures.com Alrighty, I think we're on. What are we? Ten? We're thirteen yeah. minutes into yeah. it, and we and we made a connection, so that's good. We did it. I really appreciate it <laughs> because I know you two are very busy, and for you to take both of you to take uh, an hour out of your time is uh, is an honor and a pleasure. So thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Good. Well, I had a nice here. conversation with Mariah yesterday, and I think we covered all the fun stuff. So let's just get to the nitty gritty right now. No, I'm just, oh, I'm just kidding. So um, uh, you two are very, doing very well. You know, you opened before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, you opened Gato Gato, and um, looks it look. And then during the pandemic, you found another model for a really cool space. As a matter of fact, and so um, you're just you're both rocking it in a period right now where a lot of restaurants are struggling. It's a it's a tough time, and we're going. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're going into usually a tougher period. Well, not so much the next few months, but starting in January, we're going to see people struggling. So, how are you coping with all with labor shortages and um, and everything else going on out there? Hmm. Yeah, I think that we're lucky for sure to have seen some success and to be sort of living this dream that we have and to have these two restaurants. And we know that we are lucky to see the amount of business that we have, but it is still definitely a struggle. Um, Staffing has been a struggle for a while. I think we're finally at a good spot right this moment, but I'm sure during this interview that will change in some way and there'll be some other staffing puzzle that we have to manage. Um, So yeah, like the struggle is real. It's still going on. I think for everybody, even restaurants that uh, may be very lucky and successful, um, it's it's tough out there right now. That you make a good point for a restaurant that's 
in you know that people are talking about and is mentioned on Eater in a number of ways. Um, it's still a struggle. How about the ones, the neighborhood spots? Maybe not even a neighborhood spot that isn't in the same position you're in, and they're dealing with the same things. So yeah, I mean, what I what I think about sorry, right? What I think about a lot, like industry wide, we've all gone through this moment in time together together separately in a lot of ways, right? Because we're so isolated and we've all been, we've all dealt with the closings initially, the scramble to try to find funding, try to find a roadmap to deal with something that none of us were particularly trained or ready for beyond the fact that as business owners and sort of hospitality people in general, we have this sort of innate ability to handle these stressful scenarios, right? Like we're always sort of putting out one sort of fire or another. But, um, you know, we all have to deal with these problems and now we're all dealing with the problems of trying to come out of it the other side and and figure out um, with, you know, with staffing and and the costs rising of of food and, and paper goods and everything that we do in the business and then dealing with inflation and the political climate during all of this, we're all coming out of this shared trauma of the last like two, three years. And I think a lot about this. And I, and I realized that a lot of what not a ton separates our restaurant from a restaurant that had to shutter its doors. And I think there's a couple factors at play. One certainly is what you're talking about. I mean, we are privileged enough to have gotten a certain amount of acclaim and people still are interested in what we're doing and I feel very fortunate for that and it's this combination of hard work and luck and right place right time that I feel very grateful for and fortunate um, for and also I think early on we made some choices that tended it turned out to be good choices to have made um for surviving the pandemic at a time when we had no idea if the choices we were making were going to help us or hurt us. I think a lot of people, if they're listening to this, who own businesses or work at restaurants, this might resonate where you're trying to stay one step ahead, but are perpetually two or three steps behind the pandemic, the closings, the changing of policies, the changing of public health, your social responsibility, um, and trying to manage all of this while trying to manage um, keeping a business afloat, keeping uh, the livelihoods of your employees forefront in your mind and trying to make sure they have what they need. So, I mean, for us, it, it was somewhat of a crapshoot. You just kind of sit down and say, like, what are we going to do? What path are we going to take? These are the options open to us. Do we hunker down, you know, kind of hedge our bets, wait for some assistance or try to hold on to what we have with the hopes of reopening in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, who knew it was going to be a couple of years. Um, do you, you know, some places immediately closed and said, I don't, I'm not, we're not going to handle this. We're out. And then us, I mean, what we tried to do, we, in our conversations, we didn't know better than anyone else what the future is going to hold. And we said, look, what we want to do is get back, soon as possible to just doing what we do, which is trying to stay creative, trying to create jobs for our staff, finding creative ways to like keep cooking 
even if it means initially cooking for very few people take out doing this pop-up omas but really what it came down to when you put it in a nutshell is like let's not allow these outside forces to control us as much as we can let's bet on ourselves and still try to be the agents driving what gato gato does in the next year and that ultimately i think that requires a thread of passion that you obviously have right but there are people you mentioned who just threw the threw in the towel in the beginning and those could have been folks who'd been in the industry for a long time and it was never that challenging and all these challenges built up and said well gee maybe i can paint for a living i don't know it might be a little easier so well you know i don't know if it's i don't know if it's that because i don't i I don't it's it could be that i think that i don't want to like take that away from anyone that did close and say oh it's because it was too challenging I, i this is a challenging business so I don't think it was necessarily that looking at it like that and saying, oh, I can't handle that. I think look at someone like Ricker. Andy, yeah. Andy Ricker from Pockpock. I mean, he saw the way the wind was blowing like pretty early on and things started changing and he just was like, time to, time to fold. You know, like, and, and I don't think it was because he couldn't handle it. I think there are a lot of things personally about the social responsibility of it as well as you know, I have all these restaurants. How, is this something that I want to try to manage? The financial burden, and he had this out, which is like I. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say that was you his know, out, because he had a a really good option, right? So, um, and I th- yeah, I think it, it might be less. It might be actually the some people who closed early, kind of, in, they may have just had a little bit. Maybe they've been open long enough. They had some insight that we didn't have. Or some choice that we didn't have. I mean, we were only open eight months. What else were we going to do? We were all in it. Got it. I mean, that so. came up for me a lot. That idea of like, what else could I possibly do? I have never mm-hmm. had a job outside of a restaurant. It's not like there were restaurants that were looking to hire anyways at that point. So, And we're a family who both of us own this restaurant together. So if we had decided to fold early on our like our options for work and survival were very very limited like that was not a path that we felt was an option so we decided that instead we were going to try to hustle our butts off and we did everything from like a drive-in movie theater to take out to like feeding uh protesters we did so much stuff because we decided that we would try to stay busy and try to find like creative ways to show hospitality from a distance and experience all this isolation but find some comfort in like seeing that one member of your staff who you see every day or whoever that is and that was something that we really needed for a lot of reasons you know, Mariah, it's, it's been so long that I almost forgot about, like, what f- what felt like the most important piece of what we were doing is, like, you know, you finding a way. Like, the first couple days of cooking for an empty restaurant, when we tried to set it up as, like, a pandemic restaurant where you're cooking just takeout, it was so eerie. And it just felt so soulless and different from what we had been used to that I didn't think I could do it. 
it just was so odd going in. I mean, you know, you're used to doing prep. No one's in there. It's just you and the team. But it was like me and my and my sous chef. And then we'd start cooking food and tickets would come in. But the, the restaurant was just silent. You know, and this this big space. And it just felt so isolated and weird. But I think beyond the food, which we still wanted to kind of stay creative and, and do something fun for people. Because people kind of needed that, I think. Is that what Mariah was able to do and what the team in the front of the house was able to do with exactly what you said, like still creating ways and finding ways to put touches on what we did that spoke to our commitment to hospitality and showing people, hey, we're still here and we're still here for you. And like, we're not just going to be, this food's not just going to be showing up on your doorstep. Like, you're going to come and feel a little bit of hospitality when you come pick it up. Whether that's the way Mariah set up the the service windows or just the way that we communicated about what we were doing with people. I think that, more than anything else, is what, like, kept our spirits. Like, I'm not going to say hi, because there were some fucking low points. But, um but kept us like coming back to it and saying like, okay, like we're on like the path here. Like people are responding to what we're doing. Clearly people are still like interested in what we're doing. Even if what we're doing isn't gato gato anymore, they're responding to, um, they're responding to the energy that we're putting back into it. And, and that started to feel really good. And I think by the time Oma's takeaway, the pop-up that we began in gato gato, started to get traction that became that became like the reason to go in every day you know and that's why we did like mariah and toby set up this movie screen and we did these drive-in movie nights with food that mariah like devised this cart to bring to people so we could do distanced food service and this is back when like everyone thought they were going to get covid through like the filaments of their clothing if they like drove down the street with someone who had it you know it's like no one knew still like how this was going down and those are impossibly unproductive money wise but but really fun and like we were able to gauge the community in this fun way um you know it was such a pain in the ass but it was but it just like spoke to like just trying like let's just do it and um, and I just love. I think this that. is kind of a rhetorical question, but do you think that's like swinging the heavy bat, right? So you hope you don't have to go through something like that again. But the fact that you did, when no one, there was no playbook, as you said, there was no playbook, and there was no way to do it. But you had to dig deep to find different ways to be creative in the hospitality industry. I mean, I was one who was constantly. I guess I was complaining that from my perspective, I wasn't blaming anybody, but from my perspective, picking up food in a box was not what I was really interested in. I mean, that was just the food. I wanted uh, interaction. I wanted an experience at restaurants. So you had that. So has it carried through now to 2022? We're in September where you think it's going to make you even a better better restaurateurs than you were before yes i think for me like a lot of the things that we learned we i mean we apply every single day i'll say personally like that idea of like 
making hospitality no matter what we set up some crazy weird shit and we were just like unabashedly ourselves and we've always kind of had this motto that like we want people to feel like they know us a little bit when they walk into our space and at the restaurant a lot of that is reliant on like these design choices or the music we choose or all these little ways that we touch the atmosphere before you even get the food like obviously you're smelling it you know a little bit what you're in for because maybe you've heard about it but like we give you so many clues about what you're in for before you actually have the experience so we thought a lot about how to do that with with takeout we set up this really wacky tent with like a bunch of goofy lights and disco balls and all of this really silly stuff and i think that like levity and that sense that like we know this is like tacky and silly and it we're gonna still like do it really earnestly and like make that be our kind of guiding light like that has carried over so much into the personality of Oma's hideaway which is a brick and mortar restaurant now but like any design choices that i think we would have felt like timid or shy about making pre-pandemic we were able to make really confidently and I think also just like in life and in work, this really taught us a lot about like embracing change and that change is the only thing you can rely on. It's the only constant. And if you can like go with change and try to find a way to find positivity and change and say to yourself like, okay, things are changing. How do I want them to change? And how can I be part of that process? I think those are questions that we are now like very used to asking ourselves and those questions are really helpful no matter what happens because that change is constant and we're always going to be needing to find ways to navigate I think if it. any if we ever knew that we I mean, know that now right because 3 years ago the concept of sure. change was oh we have to buy a new house or something like that now this is yeah. upheaval and uh, you you've yeah. done with that you've done that very nicely and I, I would just make a comment that what you're talking about and what you created was very important because People were at a point where they just needed, it wasn't necessarily only the food, they needed some change from their four walls inside their house when they go out, I need to feel something. We felt the same way. We were like, we need to like connect with somebody other than each other. And like, even if we can't see them, even if we're like, there are walls separating us or whatever, I know that like, you're hearing that playlist I made when you pick up your food. I know that all of the plants from my home that I brought in to decorate this stupid tent that we set up every single day, like all of that is adding to your experience. And like, that's why we get fed by making these connections with our community. That's like why we're in this business. That's the reason we've always been in this business. So still continuing to prioritize those same values, but like finding new ways to execute them was like, that's what kept us going. And Mariah's talking about, like, they set up this really cool takeout area at Gata, which I'm not sure you were ever able to make it to or not. But, I mean, hearing from guests, you know, just their two-minute arrival to pick up their bag that had, like, a drawing on it and their name and a note from us and the food inside and, you know, there's lights and plants and decorations and maybe there's, like, a... Yeah, you know, Dolly Parton in a frame. I mean, it was just it, it, to hear that it lit up people's day and that it gave them a little bit of change, just like you're saying, 
that was really special to to us. And I think I think that like what Mariah was saying is that Gato Gato, it was our first restaurant that we from like you know soup to nuts had everything to do with. And I think you're in this year long process of the build out, and making all these decisions. And I think you tend to sort of fall back on what you know. And some decisions we made were less how we want to be seen and do things and more like, well, how does, how do you do a restaurant? Because when you get nervous, it's like, well, what do you, we have to make this choice. Like what would a, what would a restaurateur do? Like what would a, what would our peers who we look up to do? We, we made a few choices like that that I think we wouldn't do. Um, we're very proud of what Gatto became. I don't think it was at all the restaurant it was we had in our mind or when we opened, we went through lots of change because I like to change the menu and the vibe and, you know, not being afraid to do that um, and sort of reimagining what you can do with a space. And if you look at the space of Gato Gato as, you know, this is our restaurant, but what we do in those four walls isn't dictated by the by the, the times or the, or the guests. We can sort of choose what we want it to be. Um, we allowed it to sort of grow organically. And, um, and that definitely led to the way we looked at um, Oma's hideaway when it you got one advantage going for you is that you are in portland oregon where you can do some things that aren't necessarily (laughs) looked at askew that people would just go oh cool whereas in somewhere else we're like what the fuck are they thinking (laughs) yeah (laughs) totally we were like you some weird (laughs) shit here and people are gonna like that was really exciting That's one of the reasons we actually ended up moving out here. I mean, we did, you know, we ran some restaurants in, in Maine, but we did our pop-up there and, and we started our pop-up again here in Oregon. Um, but that's the appeal of Portland, Oregon. Anyone listening, I mean, you can still come here with an idea, a dream, whether it's a food truck, a pop-up, a dinner series, or a quirky little restaurant, and people are accepting of that. It's much harder now in the bigger cities. And like, we're, you know, we're still a big, we're a big food city. But anywhere like, you know, L.A., New York, San Francisco, Boston, you know, all these places, Houston, anywhere you go, you need to be like so dialed with your concept to succeed right off the bat. There's not a, not that these spaces don't exist, but there's much less space for a quirky little idea to turn into a restaurant, to turn into uh, a couple than there are here. Um, and I think that was something that spoke to us about the restaurant scene. Um, and you know, Oregon's been obviously very, very kind to us in our in our ideas and in our restaurants. But you know, something you went back to further. You said, "Are you prepared now for sort of whatever?" Now that you've sort of come out the other side, and I would say, like real talk, you know, there was an amount of effort to the hustle, the pivot, whatever, however you want to put it, the dealing with the turnover and. All of these people who are working with you, or for you, um, your peers as well, your family, everyone is like going through this horrible moment of their lives. Not to mention we have our beautiful two and a half year old. Oh, that too. Just that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just that. And that um, is that, you know, the reopening of when we opened Oma's in the whiskey soda space, it and then we kind of had to re reconcept it um as this takeout it wasn't just it wasn't doing what we wanted we shut down and really doubled down on ourselves reinvested and redesigned it and did another grand reopening it's very rare you get two chances in the restaurant business because of the pandemic we got a second chance to kind of be like this is the dream 
And Mariah got to design a dining room that is awesome. But that final push to get open, for me anyway, was sort of like, that was like all I had for a while. And for about a year after that, I was mostly checked out. My father was sick. Just that pivot hustle, staying afloat was, it took its toll. So I just, I just want to mention it because I think if people are listening, it's not like we just found this formula that worked and now we're, everything is just groovy. I mean, it took its toll and I'm still trying to find my way back to, you know, whatever it is, your, your personal mojo or the inspiration, the, the passion for it. Um, those fires were dampened a little bit. I think this year, as we're talking now, I have sort of a, a newer management team and I'm really looking towards the future in this optimistic way that I haven't felt for a couple of years. It was autopilot. We got to do this. Let's go all in. You know, the chips are down, however you want to put it. And then off the cliff because it was like, that's mm-hmm. all my energy. We, we're not going to close. And then it was like, boom, I need space. I can't even handle it. And that took its toll, I think, also on the on the management. And you know, luckily, we had really good management that was able to sort of like keep the ship moving in the in the right direction. But now I'm I'm back more mentally. I have more space for the creative aspects of it, and I'm enjoying it much more. And I'm really excited for the next year because, as you say, like we've dealt with all this, and now I want to get back into like loving being at the restaurant and loving cooking food and being with my team and seeing what we can do in a relatively post peak pandemic era um, and getting back to not just surviving, but like creating and thriving. I think it's going to be a fun thing. I don't know if you um, listened to the interview I just did with Gary Okazaki and we were talking about, Mm Um, you know, a changing of the guard. You know, the Andy Rickers aren't here anymore. The Vitaly mm-hmm. Paley's aren't here anymore. The John Gorham's aren't here anymore. You can go down the list, and I, I'm sorry if I missed anybody, but I asked him who, you know, I mentioned Gregory, and uh, I, sh- I humbly admit I went down, you know, I could come up with about three, and he mentioned you two. He said, no, these two are, you know, some of the new guards. So you get to come back, uh, not come back, but continue on with that's a big thing I think in Portland, Oregon because I think a lot of people through the pandemic when people like Andy Ricker are closing are thinking what are we going to where's our where are our anchors you know we've had these anchors for years and Mm. now it's all going to change so that's exciting I would like to come back uh, and discuss a little bit about your separate mojos and where they were and how you met and what that did, that spark did, and how you got to Portland. But first, we need to take a little break here with a, a message from Ringside. We're here with Tom and Mariah Pisha Duffley, and we'll be right back after this. All right, Chris, let's just pause a moment here, talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. You know, I just had the good fortune to be on the Snake River with Chef Jonathan Gill from Ringside and uh, boy that was fantastic and he served up a little bit of Wagyu and some culottes and some incredible corn that's available on their menu as a side dish so that was a lot of fun you can go to uh, I think Portland Food Adventures 
uh, Instagram and check out a couple of the images from there. But I will say the couple of nights before we went, my friend and I went to ringside and um, I wanted him to enjoy the best steak he's ever had. Um, And we asked chef jonathan to suggest which one of the three options for wagyu steak we should have and there's a um a4 olive fed um wagyu available on their menu it's it's a premium price of course but it's worth it because it may just be the best steak you've ever had and and as i said jonathan served some wagyu on the river and we had quite a few people who were regular customers of ringside who said that was that was the best steak they've ever had so that's my suggestion um treat yourself to one of the three options on the menu for wagyu at at ringside yeah definitely one of the reasons why ringside steakhouse is portland steakhouse for over 78 years and we should mention you know they've gone through some different changes over the past couple of years uh because of the pandemic but now open seven days a week back to the way it was and you can get the uh, full list of uh, hours and schedule your next reservation on their website ringsidesteakhouse.com and you know we, we should be honest chris in the waning days of summer take advantage of that patio dining out there under the tent I think we should be emphatic as in addition to honest and yes, get out there and enjoy that, uh, the outdoor air at ringside because, uh, it's still open. You can check on their website or call when you make a reservation to see if they have tables still outside. And of course they're serving in the bar as well. So that's a great option. Lots of options at ringside. And of course they've gone out of their way to make sure everything is healthy and, uh, air is circulating and, uh, ringside a great choice very nice so as i mentioned reservations at ringsidesteakhouse.com or just make it through the open table app okay we're back with i'll, I'll uh, reverse the order mariah and tom pisha duffley Hi. Um, Hi. and we've been talking about really the pandemic restaurant industry and Gato Gato and Almost Takeaway and how that's uh, how those have fared and grown throughout that. I wanted to go back before that and let people uh, give people the opportunity to get to know who you two are. They know your restaurant part this podcast and everything that I've been doing for 12 years has been with the goal in mind of letting people know a little bit more about those people serving their food and making it and who make up this industry so i don't know where you want to start but how you two both got interested in food and then i would like to hear about that i want to hear the exact moment that you made eye contact and and maybe like i should do your bio it's like maybe i do your bio and you try to do my bio and see if it's right i'm gonna tell this story (laughs) all right let let her go let her i i'm I'm looking forward to this (laughs) So basically, me and Tom, when we first met, we were teenagers. So this was like, you know, everybody talks about right now, this like teenage dirtbag phase is like the thing. We were real teenage dirtbags when we met. Um, Can you define a dirtbag? What went into your being dirtbags? Oh, God, I got I got some I got some some juicy path we could 
Yeah, we could spill some tea on for a long time. Well, no, 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 no. Let's do that. Let's not drop that because we won't come back to that. I want to make just we'll come back to we'll come back Um, to the path. But let's hear some of the dirt baggiest things that you both did, because I love to hear those. Well, I'll I'll quickly go. I'll quickly go from when we met in like high school. And where was this? Where was this? This is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and so I went off to Vermont and had, you know, five, six years in Vermont where I was like following the dead on tour and sort of going to school. I was enrolled in college, I should say. I didn't go to college. And then, you know, I, I came back down to Boston with the idea that I was going to start cooking. I had this idea that I was going to start being a cook. And I, I took a job at, you know, literally like, like flipping frozen burgers and hot dogs at this place, Bukowski Tavern, where Mariah worked. And, and so Mariah and I re-met. But so that's sort of like the, sh- the very short trunk. Well, yeah, but she was going to do that. But, you, we but we need to hear like your dirt, dirt bag stories first. And then we get back to Mariah. Well, I'll give a couple a cup. I'll give a couple like. Uh, OK, going home in your in your chef whites would be one sleeping in your chef whites, then going back to work in your chef whites. I mean, these are things I wouldn't imagine a professional cook wanting to do now. But those are sort of the realities. Of the I'm looking for things that, that involve cops. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, there's a few. There I mean, I don't want to. things that involve cops. We went to a lot of raves. We definitely partook in some things that are illegal and not not great. Um, we were just we were little little punk kids. And how long ago was this? Um, just to give everybody an idea. Years how many? Twenty two. You like said. Okay. I think. When we met, um, yeah, we were just like skipping school and doing drugs and partying with our friends and sort of exploring our our teenage self our bodies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of creative experimentation. Um, and then, like Tom said, he moved to Vermont. He followed the Grateful Dead around for a while. I stayed in Boston and um, bartended at a, a couple little punk rock dive bars and. Uh, one of those dive bars had a sister restaurant that we would go hang out at all the time on our days off. I went to that sister restaurant and I saw Tom there sitting at the bar and I, you know, we had been friends when we were teenagers. So I was like, Hey, Tom Duffley, what's up? He was like, Oh, I'm, I'm flipping burgers here now. I just moved back to Cambridge from Vermont. That's sort of when we reconnected. Um, and at that point, Tom was like, I'm going to be a cook. And I was like, okay, cool. He was Flipping frozen. Cinnamon. I think at that point I was like, I'm gonna be a chef. I'm gonna. Own and this a is yeah. this is before this is really idea. before food Great. TV. So you had to. There wasn't that influence. Well, this is like right. right at the cusp. Right at the cusp. I mean, I was, I was a little older. I mean, I was at, I was like probably 26 or 27 at this point. I, had, you know, I was in. I, one point was you know studying literature and thought maybe I'd be a lawyer. So I sort of approached food from that side of it, like reading a lot. I was kind of a food nerd um, in my in my downtime. Maybe like you know, I worked at this place, Bukowski. Like maybe I like fancied myself some sort of like um, drunk savant. Um, but either way, I was working. I was flipping. I was making hot dogs. Right when we met, I wasn't. It, it certainly. Well, wasn't I'm going to say night. also that on the East um, Coast, there was a better idea of good hot dogs than I found out here, for the most part. Well, at least we have a at Don't least we have the split top bun. Don't even get me started on side cut freaking yeah, bread no, buns. Yes. Yeah. We, you could do a whole podcast about my disdain for uh, 
hot dog buns in the West Coast. So are you saying that you miss anyway. those side cut bread buns like from Howard Johnson's? No, I miss the I miss the split the split top, which to me is the only thing that makes sense where you can griddle the sides, put a hot dog in it. When you get them here, they're side cut, which makes no sense to me. And then the bread I mean, go to the store and look at it. It may not make sense because it's probably the only thing you've ever done. Well, no, I listen, I, you, I you can't you can't find split top. Well, I'm a little confused here. in terms like, of it's in terms, it sounds like you're describing what I miss, but the I wouldn't I don't know if I'd call if I would think of it as split top. I'm talking about lobster rolls on the East Coast where the sides yes. are cut off, yes. they grill them on the sides and they put the lobster yes. in there and they do hot dogs as well that way. And that's, you know, I, yeah. you don't see that very often. I've seen Rick Jencarelli do that here. And that's about it. That's about it. Well, because he's, he's well, from, exactly. He's he and I are brethren from Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. Oh, you're from yeah. Connecticut, boys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah I love Rick. And then Rick, Rick worked for a long time as a chef at Shelburne. Farms I was going to ask you about that, but I've, and we both I've worked for generally, I've learned on this podcast, don't ask the, question that is might be a no and it goes nowhere so i didn't ask that but but so (laughs) well we he worked for sorry no we're not we're fine so timeline um you were in vermont and you had the opportunity to eat his food there which is kind of cool right i would imagine you maybe ate his food at shelburne farms or you just knew he was there i may have but not have known it you know what i mean i didn't know i certainly right but you ate there you ate until i moved out here but yeah right yeah 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 for sure um, and then we both worked for Barbara Lynch for a number of years and may have crossed paths at that point. So it's a, see, it's a small world. Probably not because he's, and you know, yeah, Tommy, he's, he's three or four decades. You know, older Tommy than me, from Pizza Jerk and um, his sandwich place, he's also from Connecticut as well. There's a lot of really cool sure, Connecticut yeah. heritage. And there's a lot of Vermont heritage in Portland. You've got Greg Denton from Ox. You know, there are a few others that, I'm, that aren't coming to mm-hmm. mind, but... Anyway, I'm sorry we digress, uh, yeah, but uh, because once you start talking about those buns, then I find I find my way into those buns. So okay, I'm sorry. Let's figure out between the three of us where both of you were. Dirtbag. Okay, so short summary: we're like working in little dive bars in Boston, but Tom is like sure he's going to be a chef. And at this point in our lives, we're, like, throwing these parties that are way above our abilities. We're, like, we're going to have a pate and and galette party. And, like, we're just having friends over for, like, a ton of, you know, different meat preparations. We would frequently buy, like, whole goats and smoke them at midnight in our backyard or we would be like, let's make Scrapple. It's 3 a.m. And we would go to the 24-hour grocery store. There had store to be marijuana involved with all of this. Oh. I think <laughs> marijuana, I think uh, you go to the store and buy snacks. I think when you're doing rails of cocaine, you go up and buy Scrapple. Oh, okay. Scrapple all right. Well, thanks. So, there there we go with some dirt bags. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, there was a lot of stuff involved. <laughs> Certainly also marijuana. Um, and so, yeah, we were like really just sort of experimenting on our own. Tom ended up really begging his way into a job at this restaurant. Oh, that's fine. I I figured that was your dog. Yes. There was a restaurant next door to the bar that Tom worked at. That was like this Cambridge institution 
that had been open for a long time, but was like very well respected and just had this really special place in the Cambridge food scene. And Tom would go there, probably drunk after work every day and say things like, get to know this face because I'm going to work here. I'm going to work here someday. I'm going to work here someday. He, well, I was really dramatic. I was also kind of a romantic, but we I drank with their cooks every day, and I really looked up to these guys. And they were just your, you know, these like hard nosed drinkers that would they all had know, were known for hiking and like they, it was yeah, brisket and yeah. It was kind of like it was kind of like a throwback to like uh, older sort of Anthony Bourdain novels, where like you know, as an older human now, I can take a lot of that with a grain of salt. But as a younger man, I really like bought into the romantic side of the industry and like all of the toxic things that went in that go into that. I was like, yes, like this is what I, I can, I can live this lifestyle and I can cook on the line and get this sort of measure of respect from my coworkers and kind of like the big, the you know, big swinging dick kind of machismo that East coast grill really at that time. And that like, you know, that in that snapshot of, time in Cambridge really like I was was the epitome of all of that and I just was I was like totally enamored like I said and I was like this is it this is what I want um you know looking back it is this turn and burn restaurant that certainly does it deserves like the place it holds in the history of like Boston food and Chris Lessinger um you know will always go down as like one of the 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 most well-known or respected chefs in the history of Boston food although his relevance may be like waning um, in modern times. But anyway, this is the restaurant I wanted to work at. And so, I had anyway, convinced myself I was going to work there. Tom was like begging his, he was like, you know, there every day committed to like trying to get this job. Uh, in a parallel note, on one of our dirtbag nights, Tom broke his thumb and had to get a couple pins put into it. Um, the, a few days after he got these pins put into his hand, he gets the call from East Coast Grill like, hey, Tom. You know how you've been asking for a job? You want to start tomorrow? Tom's like, yes, I want to start tomorrow. He doesn't really mention the pins in his hand or the cast or anything like that. Basically, I'd like gotten a fight with one of my best friends at the time, and he had like dropped me on my head and twisted my thumb all the way around. <laughs> I went to the hospital, got all these screws. That's very Boston. I had this big cast That's... covering, <laughs> and I, yeah, it really. I mean, much more so than than out here. And uh, I I had this full cast on my hand and these pins in my thumb and I'm like sitting on my parents' couch. This is a dirt bag, right? I moved back from Vermont. I moved in with my mom for my mom and dad for a month, <laughs> quotation marks. I ended up staying there for like two years. Um in my in my parents' basement. So I'm living in my parents' basement. This happened. I'm on my mom's couch, cast on, pain pills, just kinda doing my thing. And yeah, the chef at the time there, Eric Gaberski, calls me and says, Hey Tom, you've been harassing me. Someone called out, when can you be here? And I said, you know, tomorrow. Uh, and uh, took some scissors, cut the cast open so I could move my fingers, and uh, and went to work. And that's how I got my job at East Coast Girl. Well, I pulled the pin out after work because it, it worked its Ooh. way out of my hand Ooh, after a few days. Oh, that's painful. And so I pulled the pin out. I think in your bathroom. Yeah, that, at the time. Talk about anyway, swinging the heavy bat. There, that's swinging the bag. heavy bat. Good for you. For- yeah. So that was like Tom's first real restaurant job. Um, shortly after that, I got a job at like a sort of more upscale cocktail bar bartending. 
And we sort of like started at that point dreaming about what our restaurant would be. And at that time it would be like a little charcuterie based dive bar and sort of very like Spanish in its style of service of being like small and intimate and all about these like meats and special drinks. And then um, we, you know, worked in and around Boston for a few years. Like Tom said, he worked for the Barbara Lynch Grupo um, at Sportello and the butcher shop and drink. Um, and then we decided they to- started to kind of polish off some of the rough, and- rougher edges. Okay, we were so who fell in love with who first or was it just a mutual thing? in love with me first. <laughs> uh, that is likely that is likely true like I said in high school I mean th- three years seems like way like a, a insurmountable at least for me they're, my dirt bag only goes so deep where I'm not going to I'm not going right, to date someone three years younger than me when like I'm in high school right but when you get older, those three years become, it becomes trivial. Mm-hmm. Like we all see that, right? I mean, if you're like, oh, you married a 33-year-old at 30, no one bats an eye. If you're 17 dating a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't on the table. You know, it wasn't even. But, but you know, when we remet, yeah, it was great. There were sparks and we went out. Um, and I think initially it was like. Yeah, it was good. It was good times. You know what I mean? Like, let's have good times. We, we ran in the same circles and we knew and it was great. And I think it quickly turned into more. And I think both of us were a little like, what the fuck? Right? Like, this is happening. I'm sure Mariah's friends I was were definitely like, like, like no. they, were pulling, they were pulling her aside and said, listen, this guy pulls, this guy yeah. gets in fights and pulls pins out of his thumbs. <laughs> like, I mean, listen, sure. my friends were not scandalized by that. Not to like whatever, but you are not the first. They weren't. But they weren't scandalized. But like, let's just say it wasn't when, especially when people heard that we were getting married. Well, that I think there was less support <laughs> than I would have wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, the the. The polishing began probably with, <laughs> with working for the Grupo. Um, we yeah. ended up uh, getting engaged on Manemsha Beach, where they filmed Jaws on Martha's Vineyard. Is when I asked Mariah to marry me, and we decided that we needed some new, some new uh, surroundings, and we moved to uh, Portland, Maine, mostly because I um, went up there for a stage at Hugo's after a meal we had had there, Mariah and I, and we were. Um, blown away by their charcuterie program. This well, really awesome. creative program. It's a really great hospitality program as well. What was that? We were out at a bar one night with Jamie Beeston, and you were like having this crisis of your career, and you were like, "What should I do?" And Jamie Beeston. Oh yeah. You should move. To I forgot Beeston. about that. I bet he doesn't remember that either. But that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So. Jamie B. Snett was like, you should move to Maine and work for Andrew Taylor and learn charcuterie. So we moved to Maine. We had an extra room in our apartment. It became our charcuterie cave. We uh, would have hams hanging and sausages and all sorts of fun stuff kind of going on in Maine. And yeah, we lived there for about five years before we moved out here. And, you know, the... Before we moved out here, we visited a couple of times. Tom's sister lives out here. I think eating at like 
Javiel is probably what actually made us decide wow. to move here. That's um, pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, well, let's back back it up a little bit. I mean, when we moved to Maine. Now that you bring up <laughs> Jamie, and if you don't know who Jamie Beeson is in the in the food industry in Boston, I've heard of him. Research, yes, but or I've seen him. Um, but what he was getting at, so he had opened Copa, which uh, was you know doing all their in-house charcuterie at a really high level. That stuff that had that Boston hadn't really seen um, outside of like these sort of old school like sausage um, restaurants that existed like off on the highway. But he was doing this like really fine dining Spanish style Italian um, charcuterie in this like tapas style that really had caught on. But what Boston was going through at the time that Maine was a few years behind was that uh, the health inspectors were starting to catch on that everyone was doing all these things that they were not, you know, preserving things with salt and fermenting meats. And was like pouring bleach all over Jamie's meats. It was like yeah. late traumatic for chefs yeah they, they were shutting people down and, and asking if everyone had HACCP plans and this is like when sous vide cooking was hitting it's like zenith and everyone was like oh well you, this is not you know you're creating these uh you know this these oxygen free atmospheres in which bad bacteria can grow so in boston everyone's cracking down on this but in maine it was still the wild west where we you know uh, and this is the part you said, like, let's not get anyone in trouble. But certain restaurant groups that I am familiar with intimately, you know, we were um, curing our own meats, like in meat caves, in our spare bedrooms, in basements, in secret rooms off of the restaurants. We were like, uh, you know, distilling our own alcohol to make like distilled, um, distilled like essences of flavors, as well as like maybe some booze for the line cooks. But, you know, all this really creative, deep, deep, deep cookery was happening without being hindered by the necessary oversight of like a, a, you know, a health authority that's paying attention. So Maine was a wild west. If you wanted to do really cool charcuterie, if you wanted to be doing deep preservation, like making fish sauce from scratch and, and these sorts of things. Portland, Maine is where it was at. And it had Andrew Taylor, Mike Wiley, and and um, Arlen Smith with a restaurant that was a vehicle for all this, which is at the time well, was huge. And I, I have one other question uh, while you're on that. And I just said I don't generally do this, but I'm assuming the answer is going to be yes. Are you familiar with uh, Allison and Matt at Standard Baking in Portland, Maine? Did you know them? Sure. Well, Matt was yeah, one of absolutely. my best friends yeah. growing up in elementary school. So. Oh wow! So, oh wow! That's super interesting. I mean, yeah, the circles just get smaller. And it smaller was really and more, cool yeah. to find out that's what he ended up doing. But yeah, we did sleepovers in second grade, and then I find out that's what he what he's <laughs> that's, doing. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think that Portland, Maine, has some of that same spirit that we've found here, where like people are willing. There's it's such a tight restaurant community there because it is such a small city that people are willing to give weird stuff a try. So, like, after working at, for this restaurant group for a while and kind of, like, working around Portland, Maine, we started to have sort of another, uh, like, Tom was feeling pretty burnt out. We were wondering what, like, the next steps were for us. I was managing a restaurant. Tom was managing a kitchen. But, like, we felt like it wasn't sort of personally fulfilling in the way that we wanted the rest of our career to be. Um we ended up going to Indonesia for a month and traveling and eating a ton of food. And when we came back, we were like, we want to do a pop-up and sort of 
similar to what we found here, people were very receptive to just trying it out. And the first pop-up we did, the first like real big pop-up we did was terrible. But people came back <laughs> for the second one, which was fucking awesome because we The first one had some we learned a lot. There were some moments of clarity and genius. Well, and you got to fail to get just, great. You must fail. Totally. Oh, we fi- and we failed a lot. <laughs> I'm genuinely glad that we did. And I'm also grateful that we failed in these communities where people were like, that might not have hit on every note, but like, we're going to come back next time and see if they do it better. And we did. And it really like the sense of community that we felt through these pop-ups in Portland, Maine was like really powerful and really special to us. And we realized like the levels that you can connect with people. If you sort of like experience your own identity through your food or hospitality. And that's really when Tom started like exploring his personal identity through his cooking up until that point, it had been cooking like, French food or Italian food or like trying to get in the mind of his chef and figuring out what his chef would want, which is a very important skill that like he had to learn. And it's, he's very good at that. But that after going to Indonesia, Tom really started to like experiment with his own identity through his food. That's when we got our first jobs together at a restaurant where I was the general manager and Tom was the chef of sort of like a Southeast Asian noodle bar in Maine that we opened together and ran for a couple of years. And then we moved out to Portland, Oregon from there. Yeah. A little context. My mom is from, is was born in Indonesia yeah. in Surabaya on, on Java. And so that's where my grandmother's family was from. They're Chinese from Indonesia. Um, so I hadn't, after all these years of cooking, I hadn't really looked at this really like formative part of my, cultural background as something that belonged with my career. I just never put those together. And I still think of that, how odd that is and how like whitewashed my mindset was at the time as to what was food to cook professionally and what was food that was in my personal life. And it was when we went to this trip to Indonesia that like literally like getting off the plane and just having, like you hear about people having these like aha moments, but like the smells First, the smells, like for sure. And then and then you eat the food. And I was like, I know this food. Like, I don't know how to make it, but I know it, the flavors of it. And I understand how they work because I've been eating this shit and just not realizing that I've been processing it. And now I have all of these years of experience doing other food, but I can apply that experience to what I don't know about this cuisine and sort of make something a little different. Um, it's sort of the benefit of like being naive is that you don't, you don't, you can't do the cliche things because you don't even know how to do the, the real thing. So it's almost like the the nature of it by just trying to figure it out, um, you end up with something that becomes unique just out of, out of necessity. Um, and that's what we started doing. Um, I think also it is really interesting that you never thought about this professionally until that point because like although although you hadn't thought about it in that way the food that your family ate like played such a big part in your life like 
Tom often talks about like the first time he took a girl on a date, he took them to this restaurant Penang in Chinatown that's like Malaysian food. Or like for our wedding, his grandmother cooked her red chicken and gado gado for our rehearsal dinner. Like these moments when his mom became a justice on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, they're like serving Malaysian and Indonesian food at her celebrations. Like all of these really important life milestones this food is present and his mom and his grandmother are like cooking this food and talking to him about this food and he's cooking it at home but like that it didn't make the leap to like your professional life until this uh yeah i mean that's a whole we could talk for hours about you know food identity and cultural politics and like sort of the the whitewashing of like third culture and being like the sun or just anyone being sons, daughters of, of immigrant families, but never having experienced the culture because my mom and her brothers in a lot of ways weren't like consciously trying to get away from it. But like, you know, they grew up in the West coast and they wanted to be like Supreme you know, court justices, like all their friends. They wanted to be Americans. Yeah. <laughs> sure. My mom's, my mom's a boss. It's hard for me to like think of her in that way. Right. Because she's just my mom. But yeah, she, she was on her own path to finding out what, <laughs> her idea of being American was. And for her, it was school, lawyer, job, judge, and eventually, you know, very influential. But then also it circles back that as she reaches pinnacle, then she, suddenly she becomes this icon for Asian American women um, in that in that field. So it's not to say that it didn't play a huge part in her life, but it's not something that was like drilled into me the way that some, you know, I have you know Asian American friends who have more of the stories of like, you know, bringing their like stinky foods to to school and having to deal with that stigma for me is almost the opposite where like I had to force myself to identify culturally in my older years because my younger years were full of just not calling it like assimilation. There was, there was no like self-awareness of it. I just I was brought up to be a white male and that's how I felt in school. And it wasn't until I got old enough to question my place in society and my place in my, my personal cultural identity. I mean, it's still something I struggle with. And it's still something I think about constantly with my food, with my background, especially now that my grandmother, Oma, who the restaurant's named after passed away during COVID. She was really the cultural touchstone for my entire family. Um, and with her gone, it becomes, I feel like this weight of like trying to discover more and trying to find where I fit in this more so that just doesn't get lost with her passing. Um, so traveling a lot as part of that, getting back to Indonesia and Singapore and Malaysia as often How often as do you go? How often do you go? trying to still... Um, well, the pandemic put a pause on things for sure. But I was we, at least every year for the last six or seven years, mm -hmm. we would travel. Um, I was able to go to Singapore and Korea and the Philippines and... Um, you know, twice with some, with work I had to do. Um, we're actually going in about a month with, um, a bunch of our, our senior that's, staff. I was members. just about we're to ask that. That's to, awesome. To Singapore. Yeah. We're yeah. Going to um, Singapore with 13 wow. people. Yeah. And just to give them context people. about what we're doing and not, and so instead of me telling you like, this is where this comes from, this is the way I want it to taste. It's, it's a hard thing to, to teach in Oregon where no one has that very few people have a connection to the food, whether they've traveled or cooked it. It's hard to teach something so 
foreign to somebody when they don't have any context other than well, what you present them. So now giving this context to our chefs and some of our front of house managers is going to be amazing for carrying that over into what we do. And we chose Singapore, not Indonesia, because you can, A, you can get fantastic Indonesian food in Singapore. It's a little easier to travel with the group as like a first thing. And you can get amazing Malaysian food, not to mention amazing Singapore hawker food. There's Little India, Chinatown. I mean, the amount of stellar best hits in a tiny little island you can't, it's hard to find that anywhere else except maybe like penang malaysia but that's like that's malaysian yeah. food here in singapore you can get everything and it's world class from like three michelin star which we probably won't be going to to really what we're looking at is just all the hawkers doing incredible wonton me doing incredible you know um chicken rice or Charmy or whatever it is that we're looking for. I mean, they have it in, uh, in droves, fishball soup. And It'll make everybody stuff. in your restaurant that much better, which is going to make the experience that much better yeah. for everybody because it's going to, it, I believe, and I, you know, I don't know fully, but I've seen it in action a little bit. It will make, um, them more of an expert on the type of food that you serve. And it's going to be more about this food is great with Tom's and everybody else's spin on it. It's not only yours now. Everybody else is going to have a better, uh, wider breadth of knowledge from which to contribute. Yeah. So um, I think that's fantastic. We've taken a lot of time. And then we're going to go again oh, in cool. February, I think. With everyone else. So, yeah. yeah, well, maybe we can discuss that sometimes. It's a little thing. I know somebody who does stuff like that with 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 the, with the public. So um, that would be kind of fun to talk about. Um, so we don't have a lot more time. I, um, I wanted to hear, because I was just, I've been doing a lot of appreciation lately. And one of those things is to wake up every day and talk about the things you're thankful for. I, if you don't mind, and you can both decline to do this because I'm springing this on you, uh, I would love to hear you both talk about what about each other you're very thankful you're, uh, you have the privilege to be around every day. So, Mariah, can you talk about what you really love about Tom and what, what makes you continue yeah. to be in love with him? Yeah, I can. I don't know if I can say all of awesome. it, but I can certainly say that. One of my favorite things about Tom and one of the things that I think makes him like a very exciting partner in life and in business is that like Tom cannot help but be anything except himself all the time. And that is like this blessing and curse that Tom carries because Tom's volume is turned up and I don't just mean like he's loud. I mean like he's big and he's loud and he's very passionate and he has a lot of ideas. And I think being around somebody who is like so purely themselves is like, it's very inspirational for me. It gives us, I think the, you know, GQ when they wrote about Gatto, they said we have like a hippie-ish confidence and that felt very <laughs> true. Like, I feel like because Tom isn't able to be anything but himself, he carries this really wonderful combination of, like, naivety and confidence. And I think the proportions of that combination are what allow us to, like, have this really exciting business that's constantly evolving and feels really personally fulfilling for both of us. 
and also to have like a really cool little family that is very very important to both of us as well and I think like I get to watch our daughter grow up and she is so unabashedly herself because she sees her dad be like this every day and I think for the purposes of this that'll be the thing that I'm grateful for about Tom for the moment but there are certainly I'm sure there are all right and then you had the advantage of thinking about this Tom so you're really under pressure yeah, I know. Well, I was going to say, let's not forget some of that good old-fashioned Boston Irish Catholic uh, self-doubt and guilt. But That's a New England thing. Well, it's not just Boston. But. Um, yeah. What keeps me loving Mariah? I mean, I think when you have wrapped your life into someone else's life in the way that we have with our business, in our life, I mean, it's certainly not something that everyone can do. Um, what I love is her willingness to change with me in all these ways that we have started in this one way. You talk about like our dirtbag years and these dreams that we've carried and we've changed so much together. And I think what makes or breaks a couple or a, or a partnership or, a, or, or, you know, a romantic entanglement is your ability to change with one another and to flex and give when it's necessary. And I think when one of us needs to be pulled this way, the other one kind of can push. And when the other one needs to be pushed, the other one can be there. And I think she's just been like my one true like road dog and companion through all of the like ups and downs of the last, how long have we, 15 years? that we've been together and watching her growth while she gives me space for my growth and then watching her capacity to love when we had our daughter, when all of this other stuff was happening and her capacity to keep the, the, the livelihoods of our employees to in her heart and to keep like our relationship in love and her family's love in her heart, but also like, still find these like untapped fathoms of reserves of love and caring to give to our child and our dogs and like everyone that comes in contact with her. It's just infectious, especially to someone like me who had felt for such a long time that for various reasons in life, my heart was sort of turned off to these, to this emotional capacity and having Mariah in my life, and now because of Mariah, my daughter, I feel like my heart and my soul has been like turned back on to where I am now like receiving the flow of these emotions that I didn't think I had resources to get to anymore. And I think that because of Mariah and because of my daughter, I am now finding them for the first time in a long time and able to enjoy parts of my life that I thought were turned off to um, to me because of the way that I chose to live my life for a long time. So, um, I love you for, for all of that. Wow. That is that. Thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate that. And Tom, you just demonstrated in a few minutes, exactly what Mariah had said about you. <laughs> no one's going to, no one's going to hear this though. Right? We, only, like, we only have sappy. six. We only have six. Don't, listeners. Anyone... don't worry about it. It's all set. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> now, if you will hear it, but I, you know what, I. Uh, now you need to tell me what is your 
What is your deepest secret? Mine? <laughs> now it's time for you to oh, open up man. on your own podcast. Give me some juice about your life. I want something. You're, you sit here asking us to bear. Oh, man. I feel like I want... Well, you know, you know Court and I... How about what do you have for oh, breakfast? God, you know that you that goes right on the that goes <laughs> that that is a terrible uh, adjunct to when Gary asked me the last two restaurants I, or last restaurant I went to in Portland and I told I told him um, it was Popeyes and then Annie's Donuts right in a row because those were things well, I could bring back to dude, I was you, shooting back from the airport and those were things. Now I'm gonna tell you have now I'm my gonna, heart. Well, I'm. I would like some Popeyes yeah, and some no, it's not, donuts, I, And I, I have to say, yeah. I started when I spoke to Mariah yesterday. I humbly said, it's insane that I haven't been to your restaurant yet. But I said, the only excuse I have, it's not a good one, is that I do live in Manzanita. So I'm not going out in Portland all the time. And yeah. I surely didn't do much during the pandemic. And I eat a lot at yeah. Zupan's and, you know, grab a lot of my stuff and go. Mm. So, um uh, so there's that, but I guess I have to, you know, I have to come clean on what I had for breakfast. But it's not wholly bad; it is bad. But it's I had um, a bowl, a bowl or two of honey nut Cheerios with, but with local, beautiful, delicious, fresh peaches over it. So I had Cheerios. And there you go. So All right, high, high five. five. Yeah. East Coast thing to do, but not honey yeah. nut, just the regular Cheerios. Honey, honey nut. nut. Honey oh, there you go. Honey nut. Yeah. Well, oh, so that yeah. ended honey up nut. being a yeah. very pleasant, pleasant <laughs> experience. For me. I'm not even lying. That's exactly what I had. Oat milk. Oat mi- yeah. Well, I I just had. F- I had. I, I had. Uh, yeah. You know, whole milk, um, cow's milk. But um, yeah, no. I think the more people ask me those questions, the less they're going to want to listen to this podcast. Except, I'm <laughs> one who believes. That I think having lived in Portland, there's, and Gary will tell you the same thing, Gary Okazaki, that a lot of the stuff that is everywhere gets a short shrift. For instance, you know, I found out over mm-hmm. time, I have a little thing for the sausage biscuit at McDonald's. I found out a lot of people have that. I'm not the only one. In fact, don't get me started on McDonald's. I love McDonald's. The best McDonald's in the world is in Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood District. Oh, this McDonald's Hollywood. Cesar Chavez. Why is Bet. it better? There, you Why is find it better? a better one. It's I don't know. So it's like you're eating at a different restaurant. It's try. It is so much better. Bill Oakley, if you're listening, it's owned. I know he doesn't agree with me. Bill's been on the podcast, so very. Good. He thinks the one on Powell's the best. He's wrong. It's Hollywood. But um, anyway, Bill, I'm going to say the one in Seaside, Oregon, that's, is the best because it's the only one that's close to me that I can generally go to. <laughs> Two things. Two things before we before we end. A. Do we open a seafood restaurant on the coast? Oh, and if you will serve lobster B, rolls, I will find financing for it. If you'll no problem. It's only thirty dollars a pound right now. Well, yeah, but the, Maine, the so pla- there's a, a place that's in roll. Seaside and Astoria that's charging forty five bucks for a lobster roll, which I like. I just said I'm out. That's what they're costing in Maine right now. Forty five for New England. That's there. and one hundred twenty for for crab legs. For crab, uh, king crab, king that's crab, insane. king that's crab. That's insane. Yeah, that's, that's what I insane. thought. Well, while we're on your show, you can cut this out if you want. But just thought I'd say, because uh, we were talking about all this stuff about me, and there's so much stuff going on in the world. Few things. Fuck caviar. Fuck Donald Trump. And um, stop trying to make choices for women's bodies. I we we try try to stay not Period. political on this, but I, I'm not going to disagree with you on all of that. So I'm glad you said it. I just uh, you know 
uh, we, we want a lot of people to listen to this. And, uh, you know, I found over time I'm pretty strongly political, but some of my best friends, I don't know if they're Trump supporters. That I can't say, but they're Republican. And, um, That's yeah, okay. you can be, you can Republican, be Republican. Just be a good Republican, like a, with, a, with a soul. Sure. And, um, and so, yeah, and um, I appreciate your saying that. One, one statement. We're not going to cut that it's out. Like you can be a Yankees fan, but like, pardon you know, me? It's like you can be a Yankees fan. But no, like, well, I was just about to go there with you. So I'm a, <laughs> an avid New York Mets fan. As a matter of fact, the reason I, uh, in the beginning, I had to pause the Mets playing the Pirates right now. So it, it wasn't distracting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I'm just get, Are you a Red Sox fan? Pardon me? Yes. Well, yes. Mariah, though, being the real... The, with the baseball nerd when I met her. Neither of us watch sports as much as we might want to. Well, but being a baseball fan on the West Coast is great because the games, maybe not for you, but for me, they start at 4 o'clock, and they're over at 7. You still got your sunset to enjoy and all that stuff. But um, Wait, we have widely different yeah, jobs. No, 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 no. We have, <laughs> we have, is this a job that I have, what I do? I don't, if people say that, and I'm like, I, like I don't know, it's seven, kind of a gig. Why are you watching the sunset? So, no, I don't have actual hours. Yeah. I just have weeks and days so um but i will sometimes well so we'll finish this i'm assuming that some people have already left we're over an hour but for those who want to hear a little bonus segment do you remember where you were can you describe where you were when that ball went through buckner's legs Uh, where i was Oh, you're no. too young for this. How old you're too was young I? for this. Yeah, I was I think I was 3. Was that 86? What year was that? No, it had to be See, no. Look at me failing. If for good no, thing you don't have any listeners no. in Boston. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get sacrificed that, for but this. But I'm sure so. we both remember where we were when the Red Sox won the World Series when they Yeah, that was irrelevant. Those. However, I always have a story. <laughs> so <laughs> We're the spoiled generation. They yeah. Got to see, like, you didn't live through the, the pain. I saw the Bruins, the Celtics, and the Sox all win in, like, you know, and, and the Patriots all win. In the, like, I the had when year. I was 11, so this so. is aging me. I had the Mets where I went to the Game 5 of the World Series. I was 11 years old. The Jets won. We went to the championship. We had season tickets to the Jets. And the Knicks won all in that one year. And New York hasn't been – discount the Yankees. No. But, um, but I will say this. Um, uh, so as I went to school with Terry Francona, and he – I watched him at the University, University of Arizona Crazy. bat over 400 uh, – for the whole season when I went to every yeah when I went to every game so I was in a class with him but I didn't know him I'd like to say that I conversed Mm -hmm. with him but um, anyway it was cool that I got to see his college career which was way better than his Major League Baseball career he had to wait to become a manager to become a force in Major League Baseball so um, but he did he did and he's uh, I, I you know I always wish him well I always thought he was a pretty cool guy as manager he was humble and you could see the players respected him and um 
Yeah, there's all sorts of good things going on there. So I've never, I used to actually, this goes way back. There was a time when I somehow liked Carl Yastrzemski and the Red Sox. Uh, not more than the mm-hmm. Mets, but I somehow found some kind of dual fanship thing going on. Mm-hmm. But that ended. And then later on in business, you're going to hate me for this, but I'll just, uh, we're just being honest here. I did some media buying in all over the Northeast, and the guys in Boston were the biggest pricks ever. Um, oh, yeah. we don't need you for that. Yeah. No we love Boston. We <laughs> no love argument. being big yeah. pricks. Yeah. That's our whole thing. Yeah, they were just like, I, there was one time I had a client who had already purchased the... Um, the uh, package for the Red Sox on radio, which included seats. So they were buying it to get the seats. And then they hired me to be their consultant. And I said, if you want seats, you should buy seats. It'll be a lot cheaper than buying this radio package on, what is it? What's the station? EEI? Mm -hmm. Maybe? I can't remember. So my Uh, job was to consult with them and tell them what was best for them. So I said, I would dump this package. It was like three days before spring training. And um, mm-hmm. this guy on that radio station just told me, he goes, I'm going to fucking get you and you're done. And, <laughs> and he tried every way he could to sabotage me. And I understand why he did what he did. Well, I think- but I had to do what was best for my clients. It's like, don't spend a you know, $600 cost per point in radio to get seats that you can buy uh-huh. at the time for $45. So... I would say I, that resonates with me. And I, like moving to the West Coast, though, has like has softened a, a, some of my more, you know, rougher edges for sure. And um, also being a parent, and but I think I, it still comes back to like when I meet people out here that I, I start to really connect with. I'm like, oh, this, I really, you know, this person's great. But they, I always find out they're from they're from New England. They're from like Jersey or Connecticut or New Hampshire. There's a certain, um, and I think it's the people who've left New England that kind of come out here. Like you know, all my favorite people. No, no offense to all the people I love from the West Coast, but like all my favorite people from the West Coast are from the East Coast. Yeah, you, maybe we want to cut that out. You don't want to piss uh, all those West Coast people out. But there is a certain there's a certain <laughs> sarcasm that goes with the East Coast. There's a certain. Um, understanding of just being saying what you think people don't do that necessarily in directness and so um yeah yeah no i found that i moved to arizona once man and i just could not most of the people from were from the midwest there and i just couldn't relate at all at the time i was i was a lot younger it's communication it's not the it's not the people it's like how they it's how people communicate and it took me a long time to figure out how i can communicate properly with in this oregon it's not like you know I don't know. It's it. Uh, it took me a little yeah. while to figure it out. And but I, have, I think also you know. when I moved to Phoenix, I was it was a real rough from the get go because I was working at a company. We went out to lunch, and everybody started eating their French fries with knives and forks. And I looked at that, and I'm like, oh, "What oh, the fuck boy. is this?" I don't think I can handle that. <laughs> or like when someone like he's eating there, you see people even out here. Oh my pizza, god, with for- with a knife and fork. I got I got to train. I got to teach my daughter because it it dawned on us not too long ago. That we we're like, "Holy shit." Our daughter's not from right. the East Coast. Our daughter's a well. Then let Coast her kid. have it. Let her. So we got to make sure she'll she's drive doing. a little slower. <laughs> she'll do all the. Yeah, you know, she'll be a little more careful. Um, so yeah. I just wanted to fold, learn how to fold your pizza. Right. She's you know what I mean? That's important to me. Pizza. Yeah, no, there's there's yeah. also, I, you know, there's two things I miss. I say this to this day, and I don't miss. I don't look back after. I moved here in 2005. I, I 
don't really with, with the food. It's hard for me to say I miss any food living out here. Right. That's tough. But I do miss my white clam mm. pizzas and my New Haven pizza. And I do have them. I, I do have tell them me, delivered out here once in a while from modern. Tell me you've been to Demos. Demos. Uh, no, I have not. A Demos a pizza. Demos okay, a pizza. So, Wait a minute. Demos plug. a pizza. It's not yeah. a pizza. Yes. Sorry. So this is a shameless plug because Doug's like one of my close friends. But uh, and, you know. I would say when I moved out here, pizza jerk is probably my favorite pie. I mean, there's so much good right. pizza here, right? I'm not going to do anyone. Everyone does amazing pizza. There's so much good fucking pizza in Portland. It's crazy. Doug at Demos is just go, just go eat it. He's doing a white clam pie. Does he? He doesn't. Pie. Well, His dough is fucking amazing. Important question. Key question. Most important me. question in this podcast today. Does he put shells on the white clam pizza? Okay, good. That's no. all that matters because every, you, I can't put tell you shells? how many. Even like Brian Clam Spangler, I've, he puts shells on when he does. No, and then so yeah. I've talked to a few pizza pe- people who own pizza restaurants about white clam pizzas. Oh, we can't do that because it doesn't sell very well. Well, of course not. It's too fucking crunchy. You put the you put the shells on the pizzas. Did you say <laughs> that? Was that your Go line yesterday, Mariah? I think that was your line yesterday, right? Well, the crunchy was was I? I was talking to somebody about the shells. On, oh, I know, no, we're my classmates. We do a little Zoom call with my seventh grade classmates. So that was that. No, you don't. That's so, okay. um, but listen, go to. I've go been to told Demos. that before. New Haven so should I go to De- should I go to Demos before I go to Gato Gato? I mean, you, I I got to pick and choose yes, my opportunities. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So, um, all right, well, great, but I, it's no wonder that white clam pizzas don't catch on here when they put shells on them. They're two things. Yeah, you got to spend the time taking these little teeny manila clams out of the shells one by one. Yeah. You know, the, the one thing you get, though, and from a culinary standpoint, the, one, only, the only thing I could say I under, where I can understand that is when you ro- if you're doing it right and you're roasting it in a wood fire oven, you're going to get the juices from that clam is going to get on the pizza. The well, caramel. wait a minute. Well, if you, I, that's the only thing I could see. But if you make the pizza fresh, by, fresh, t- fresh, fresh, by t- tipping that clam over and pulling it out first for your sure. customer and putting it on the pizza, that clam flavor is going to bake into the, into the crust or the cheese or something. That True. I'm just trying to make an argument for like maybe why you do it other mm-hmm. than aesthetics. There may be I, well, I, you know, and I'm not going to argue with, you know, people like... Uh, uh, Kathy at Nostrana or Brian, they what they do is great, but still, yeah. I, when it comes to white clam right. pizza, I think it can be done better. And I've told him, I've been direct I enough agree. as an East Coaster to tell him that. So, anyway, well, I would go check it out. I'll tell anyone that listen, go check that place out. It's all right. It's well, listen, I'm they're number one of my I'm sorry right we just lost Mariah somehow, but she had to go. We did. That's okay. I gotta. I gotta. Go yeah, too. man. I'm so sorry too. for keeping you this long, but it. But that's that no, is a um, that is an indication of how nice and fun this was. Because if it wasn't, we would have been out of here in 45 minutes to an hour. It's like so. I really enjoyed getting to know of you, course. and that's the purpose of this is to getting to know great folks like you. So thank you so much for oh, for being so open. Thanks for thinking of us. Sorry for sorry. Oh for no, rambling. the rambling is my favorite part. That's the part people write me about and say you ramble too much. And I found one this morning where people say your rambling is great it leads to better conversations so that's fantastic but no thank you both for being so open 
you know you you wore your hearts on your sleeves i asked you to and you did so thank you and uh i'll uh see you soon i promise it won't be until after october because i'm going to be away but um all right we'll do or i'll just stop in do we need by the way do we need don't sneak in i hate don't sneak in all right so that and do people need reservations or what's the deal you gotta you gotta give me the uh the but where do we f- you're gonna need a gato gato pdx right and same thing on instagram is that all the good stuff that people need to know gato gato pdx yeah it's on instagram uh you can email info at gato gato pdx you can go on resi and find a reservation on resi um okay and oma's not the same situation yeah, you can just go into oma's you can go in i mean i yeah, there's a lot more space for walk-ins, but reservations still, um, it gets busy, Okay, cool. So, you know. All right, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. We'll, yeah, we'll, and we can also meet outside Thank the you. restaurant, too. It would be kind of fun because you're going to be busy okay. when you're there. All right, man, thanks. We did meet yeah, outside the we'll, restaurant. We'll go to Demos. All right. Yeah, let, uh, that's the deal. We'll go to Demos, and I will make sure I'm one. Okay. I'm one who is gets pissed off when people say they're going to do shit and never follow up on it. So, um, Let's I, do it. We'll bring Gary and we'll there go you have go. a party. That's that's the deal. All right. Thank you yeah. very much. Have a have a good right. uh Take Wednesday. It easy. All right. All right. See ya. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Mm-hmm.